And these are the, the times we're going to study is after what we studied last time, the Sunday morning I spoke with the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness. After the wilderness, they came to what was called the promised land. This land of Canaan that God told them, I'm going to send you there. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a land filled with everything you could possibly need. And there's so much buildup around this, this period of wondering where if we could just get there, if we could just finally be out of these, the, these, uh, these difficulties we're going through, once we can finally get out of Egypt and the slavery we're in, all this buildup made me wonder what happened when they finally got there. What happened when they got to this promised land? Because we have it all written down. And so this uh, led, me with a few, uh, led me to a few big questions. And the first one was... The first one was, was it just happily ever after after that? Once they finally got where, where they were trying to get for so long, was that the end? And two, how did they handle the good times? How did the God's people handle the good times? Because this is going to be a good example of what's going to happen in our lives. Some patterns maybe to notice that we might not fall into the same traps they fell in if they fell in traps. So let's get into this study now. Starting with what uh, they're commanded in Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. As they went in, uh, it reads, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the, great, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. God's telling them, you're going to get it all. You're going into this great land that I, that I promised to you, and you're getting the whole thing. He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And now that Joshua is the one taking over power, God's telling Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So God tells Joshua, gives him the assurance, you're going to go in and I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. Okay, we're going to forget that. And Joshua, going on in verse 7, chapter 1, it says, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And, and I like what, what God says here. He, he emphasizes over and over. He says, Have I not commanded you? He says it again. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They were going into a promised land, but I think it's really interesting that God told them that they're going to need to have courage for this. And I think that's kind of, we're going to start to see pictures of our lives that no matter where God gives us a promised land or a special place in our life or whatever it is, we're going to need to take it with courage. It's going to come with responsibility, and we're going to have to lead in the midst of whatever we get. Whether it's a blessing or not, we're going to have to take courage into the land that we're taking uh, in our lives. And that was what God instructed to Joshua and the people. He said, you guys got to go in, but you got to take this seriously. Be courageous. And he told them over and over. And it's going to be because of what they face in the promised land. And, and the people's response is just as exciting. So they said to Joshua, saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. The people said, Mo, or said, Joshua, we got your back. If anyone does anything to go against what you say, 
he's going to be put to death. That's how on his side they were. There's so much momentum, good things happening. And as we continue on in chapter 2, if you remember, that's where the spies go in to the land of Canaan. And they go in and uh, the, the prostitute Rahab houses these people. And, and when she takes them in, she says, please don't destroy me and my family because we've helped you. And they say, okay, you just tie this scarlet cord in your window and, and you'll know that we will uh, take care of you. Then the, the soldiers who would come in to take the city later would not uh, ramsack that house. They would not take that place where she lived. And everyone inside her home will be safe. Okay, so that was chapter 2 where they, they, had, they hid the spies. Then the spies go back. And the children of Israel cross the Jordan. Now, I didn't really realize that God had his people walk through a body of water more than once. This is the second time. After the Red Sea they went through, they also have this Jordan crossing where God caused the river to stand still and all the water stops up, even though it was during flood season. And the people walk through the Jordan River on dry land. Can you imagine some million or millions of people? That would have been a difficult deal if God didn't cause a way for them to get across the river easily. All those people, I don't know how many people out of a million would have died if you tried to cross a river with them. But they get through because God stopped the waters. And this is a map of what the route they might have taken might have been across the Jordan, above the Dead Sea, and into the area of Jericho. And once, once they get through the other side, God tells them in chapter 4 to take up memorial stones from this moment. They get through this, this moment where they were to impasse, and God tells them to take up stones that were to be a memorial for this moment God delivered them. And each person, one person from each of the 12 tribes gathered a stone and they took them up together from the bottom of the river. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. Then in chapter 6, uh, we have the situation where they take down Jericho. And God does this by having them march around the city and then just blowing trumpets and shouting. And the walls fall down. This was a demonstration that God in this land will be the one who gave them the victory. God was going to be the one who took down their enemies. Because the whole promise from God is, yes, you're going to take this land, but you need to wipe out everyone else that's there because you need to get rid of the sin that's here. There were terrible sins, terrible evils, sacrificing children and awful things in this land that God said, you got to get that out. And so this conquest needed to happen. And this is how it was going to happen with God's strength. In chapter 7, though, we learned that one of those men uh, did something he shouldn't have. When they were instructed to take down the city, after the walls fell, they were instructed to go in and get rid of everything. Don't save anything for yourselves. But one man named Achan, he took some of the things for himself. He saw some clothing that was really nice. He saw some, some money that he was like, well, what's the harm in taking that? We're just going to waste it. We don't want to waste that money. So he took it for himself. And the children of Israel paid for it. Because in chapter 7, the Israelites now go into their next battle. They're rolling through. They got Jericho. Now Ai. But at Ai, they got sent running. And that's because God said someone in the camp disobeyed. And they took for themselves, and that was Achan. And so we have the first fall of the children of Israel. They get into this promised land, things are going great, and all of a sudden they lose. How, how big of a morale shot that would have been. And they had to get rid of that sin. They had to deal with Achan in a very sad way, if you want to read that later. But I'm just trying to skip through this so we kind of get the picture of what I'm going to, to uh, point out. And skipping way on into Joshua chapter 12, uh, we go on to read that Joshua, they picked up again, and their conquest took off. 
These are a list of all the kings that they took down. And at the end it says the king of Tirzah was the last one, and it all was 31 kings they took out. They wiped through 31 nations and took them down. So their conquest continued just as God said it should, but then what happened? After all of that, something changed. It says in Judges, Judges chapter 1, verses 27 through 33, the period of time we're covering is Joshua to Judges. And at the beginning of Judges, uh, Joshua has just died and he's turning over power. And it says in verse 27 of chapter 1, However, after all this conquest, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, going, going on to right here, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. There was opposition. The Canaanites wanted, wanted to stay there. And it goes on to say that Ephraim did not drive out their uh, Ephraim did not drive out their enemies. Asher didn't drive them out, nor did Naphtali. And there's a long list of people who did not get driven out. God's command was to get rid of all of this, get rid of all these people. But they stopped. They started compromising. That one first compromise where Manasseh didn't drive out the sin and the people led to others and others and others doing the same thing. Pretty soon, there was all this sin in the land and everything that was not intended to be there according to God's plan. And what happens after that? Israel absolutely falls apart. Judges is one of the most graphic, nasty books you can read because of the evils that were committed there. Eventually, at the end of Judges, the Bible says, everyone just did whatever they want. Everyone did whatever they felt like. And that was a nasty situation because there were sick evils. It wasn't just like, oh, it was so great and fun. No, it was disgusting. And so go and read that on your own time. I'm not going to cover that. But it went from promised land and victories to a small compromise that tumbled and tumbled and tumbled. And the Israelites were worse than the people around them. So what happened? Well, I think that's going to be something I, I encourage you to look into, to read into and find out. Because I'm only going to talk about a few things. But there's a lot of things that maybe we can see what they did wrong. But we're going to talk about now some comparisons for this promised land, to go back now and look at this idea of the promised land as a whole. And we want to compare it to the promised land in our lives. The promised land in our lives can be like some of the good places we find ourselves. Some of the good places maybe we want to be in life. Maybe it's we want to have a career, we want to have a family, uh, we want to be secure financially, we want uh, to meet these life goals and accolades, and we, we have a lot of hope in these these goals in our lives, they're more of a place in life or something that God has surrounded us with by his blessings. But the reality is, is that nowhere we get to in life, no goal we meet, no place we travel to, no job we get, no level of financial security we have, nothing we get is going to truly be the promised land and the blessing that God has designed unless we go in there with God. That was one of the huge lessons that I learned with, from this situation. Is God's blessing was on the people. But when they left him, they lost the meaning of the promised land together. Because when they came up to the promised land and they were getting there, it was like, please God, deliver us, get us there. And they're all relying on God. But then it turned to be not about God at all. It turned to be whatever they felt like. 
And it started with what we talked about, Achan's greed. Achan's greed was an unnecessary loss. Because if you read into there, in the situation where they went and took Jericho, God would say, here, don't take anything for yourself. But then in the next battle where they conquered the next city, God said, okay, in this battle you can take stuff for yourselves. You can take loot from this city. So God had provided for them in the future. He had a plan to give them things. He just wanted to hold off for a minute. And because of Achan's unnecessary lack of trust in God, he was stoned to death. And that was so unnecessary because God had a provision to provide for them later. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 26, it says there, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? The message to, to, to Achan and to us alike is that we need to rely on God. Because God has a provision for you for whatever need you're facing. You don't have to convince God some way that you have a need. God already knows about it. Don't you think that he, he recognizes that? Let's rely on God because Achan took matters into his own hands. And that was one of the, the very first big mistake we read about the people. Is in this promised land, someone didn't rely on God for what God was already going to provide. And as kind of a counteraction to this, we can't forget the memorial stones. When God's people passed through uh, the Jordan River and they were told to take up these stones, this is the reason. Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, you know, Dad, what do these stones mean to you? Mom, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. God told them to take up these stones because he wanted them to remember the moment they got there. He didn't want them to forget everything they went through in that moment where God delivered them and God provided for them. And in our own lives, I think we should be doing that. Maybe for you, it's, it's physically taking things that help you remember something God's done for you. I know a lot of people do that from, from travels they take. They take a souvenir. Do you, what about taking souvenirs for travels we've taken with God? A season we've been through with God where we find a victory or we find God's strength in that. There's nothing wrong with taking a little token and saying, you know what? This is something I remember. This jogs my memory that when I was here at this time, this is what I was going through, but this is how God helped me. The memorial stones were designed to be something that the, the God's people could look back on, both for themselves and for their children, because you're going to forget. I'm going to forget. You know, when, when you look back, you're like, oh, man, it all worked itself out. What was I worrying about? But in the moment, you were pretty concerned about it. In the moment, it was a big deal. And that reality made it important for them to have something they tied back to so that when their kids came through, they didn't just say, well, kids, you'll figure it out. They could say, look at this moment. Yeah, I forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me. Here's what happened there. Don't be afraid to do that with physical things or maybe it's just remembering. For me, sometimes I need a physical token and that was one of the things God instructed them to do in the Old Testament. The second thing in, in regard to this idea of a tainted promised land was the unconquered land they didn't take for God. 
And that could be represented in, uh, in this idea of driving out sin. That was the whole message, that they could get rid of the sin that was going to entrap God's people. And we learn from judges, when they didn't get rid of it, they assimilated. They started bringing it into their own lives. They started worshiping their gods. And they started taking up their practices. And it was all because they didn't get rid of it in the beginning. And we're told in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, like Christ, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign. He goes on to talk about that any bit of sin living in our life means that it's our master. And if we don't realize it, that it's even more in control of us because we don't realize the power of sin. He says, don't let it reign because you either have God as your master completely or do you have sin completely ruling and masking the fact that you don't really have God at all? So we need to remember to get sin out completely and to not stop. They started the conquest. They were rolling, but they stopped. They stopped that conquest of sin in their own lives and sin in, in, the, in the land, which is comparable to the sin in our own lives. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Another area we can compare this to is a growth mindset. They stopped wanting to push for God. Their push just fell back when they're like, ah, they don't really want to leave the land, so we'll just let them stay. What's the harm? And that seems like a, a, a passive, not a big deal, but it had big consequences later. And for us, we can't forget to have a growth mindset. We can't forget that it's our job daily, individually, personally, to take up God's commandments, to take up God's instruction and his desire for better in our lives, because that's what it's all about. We can't stop pushing, because the ease, and one of the reasons I wanted to focus on the land of Canaan is because I feel like America is kind of a Canaan. We're not persecuted. We don't have these big situations where, like, God, please deliver me from this as, as a whole. So our Canaan can kind of our ease in America can kind of ease us, can kind of lull us by the ease. We can't give up that growth mindset because they did. They stopped their conquest when they're like, well, we're fine here. And the beauty is, as Christians today, you and I have a promised land that we can kind of accept and, and create with God's will in our lives. What do I mean by that? When Jesus is talking to them in John chapter 14, he says, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What he's getting at here is God can make his home and the best life you can possibly have, the best promised land you can have in this life is going to be with God making his home with you. Because he goes on to say, Jesus, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How is it that there's going to be this presence of you in some's lives and, and not in others? And he says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. The promised land in the Old Testament was a real home. And that's what we're seeking for in our lives as well as a home, a safe place, a place to trust and rely on. And God, our God tells us that that place is something that he creates within us. He creates a home for us. He creates, makes his home with us, inside of us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, of earth, heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. He says certain people are going to be hidden from these things. Thank you for that, because the people who really care are going to see this fact, that when they come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The promised land in our lives that we can have on this earth is rest for our souls. The only way we get that is from God. To take up his burden. And like the Israelites, it wasn't just that they sit back there and did nothing. The lie of ease is that that's really burdenless. God's work is burdenless. God's work keeps us light and keeps us moving. Because we learn that when we're sedentary in life, we gain weight and we get heavy and we get weighed down. But when we're active, we feel lighter. We feel better. The same is true with God's work. If we're not working, we're going to feel heavier. But when we work, God lifts that burden and it becomes a burden we can bear with him in a light way. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And that is where we find rest for our souls. That is the best promised land we can hope for in this life. But God has promised a greater promised land. The picture in the Old Testament was just a picture of the greatest promised land we're looking forward to. In Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 16 says, speaking of these people, he says, but they now desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That wasn't the final resting place. That promised land was filled with the thing that messed up any earthly promised land. It was sin, and it was people, and, and the mistakes we make in this life. There's a promised land coming that's not going to be tainted by the people who go there. The problem with us in any place we get to in life is we think, you know, once I get there, it'll be great. But then really, we end up messing it up a lot of times. That's almost a universal trait. That's not anyone specific, what you've done in your life. That's a universal thing. But there's a place God's preparing for us where we're not going to have to worry about that anymore. We're told in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That sea is a symbol of division. There's no more division from God's people. Everyone is together. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the resting, the, the home, the place where God lives of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the promised land we're waiting for. That's the true promised land that, that the Israelites just had a picture of. That's coming. What else do we have to live for besides that? That's the greatest reality we can imagine. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain. 
Pain is a pretty big term. What do you feel pain in? Your body, your mind, your emotions. There's going to be no more of that. No more pain of any kind. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Brand new. That's the promised land we're looking for. It's not something that's tainted by our own actions or the sin around us. That's what we're looking forward to. And finally, that's the true promised land. Because it is where we find our true sense of home. It's where we find our peace, both spiritual and physical. Where we find our safety. And it's where, we'll, it's where we will be led into by a greater Joshua. The word Joshua is the Hebrew form of another word we might know. The word Joshua in Greek is translated Jesus. We're, the people of Israel were led into a promised land that was not quite all it was supposed to be by, by an earthly, a physical Joshua. But we have for ourselves a greater Joshua. That word is actually pronounced, I guess, Yeshua. In Greek, Jesus. And our, our leader didn't come leading a military conquest. He came leading a much more difficult war, a war of peace and a war of submission. And that too leads us into our true promised land. We have a whole different leader and a whole different promised land coming to deliver us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.